Welcome to another episode of You Are Not A Frog, creating a workplace that works. In this episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Sonali Kinra. She's a GP and a clinical associate for NHSE and I. She's also the workforce retention lead for Nottingham ICS. We're asking the question, just how do we stop people from leaving a job that they've worked for for many years, but maybe overwhelming, stressful and getting more and more unmanageable by the day? You may have asked this question yourself, and the good news is that there are things that make a difference. So listen to find out the impact that culture has on job satisfaction, the motivation factors that really count, and why diversifying your career may be the best thing that you can do. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for GPs, doctors, and other busy professionals in high-stress jobs. Even before the coronavirus crisis, many of us were feeling stressed and one crisis away from not coping. We felt like frogs in boiling water, overwhelmed and exhausted. But this has crept up on us slowly, so we hardly noticed the extra long days becoming the norm. And let's face it, frogs generally only have two choices. Stay and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave. But you are not a frog, and that's where this podcast comes in. You have many more options than you think you do. It is possible to be master of your own destiny and to craft your life so that you can thrive even in the most difficult of circumstances. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Morris, GP to an executive coach and specialist in resilience at work. I work with doctors and other organisations all over the country to help professionals and their teams beat stress and take control of their work. I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this, so that together we can take back control to survive and thrive in our work and lives. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours? then it's time to get your life back. And that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash getyourlifeback. It's brilliant to have with me on the podcast today, Dr. Sonali Kinra. Now, Sonali is a GP living and working in London. She's also the GP retention lead for Nottinghamshire ICS. And she's just been appointed the interim clinical associate for the primary care team for NHS E and I. So it's brilliant to have you with me, Uh, Sonali. Thank you so much for joining us in your busy schedule. Thank you, Rachel, for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. So I wanted to talk to Sonali because she's got a really good perspective on workforce retention. And we had a really great chat the other day just about what we can do to keep the people that we want to keep, to keep our good people. And I thought that this is a a huge problem in general practice and primary care and has been over the last few years. But I know that it's also a big problem in in other professions such as uh, law, uh, where they really struggle to keep particularly women, actually, and particularly women with families and other you know, professional areas where they really sometimes do have a shortage of staff and turnover seems to be high and people seem to leave after training for donkey's years to achieve the position that they've achieved and people are just upping and leaving. So I thought it'd be really good to just explore a little bit 
about why that happens and, and how we can prevent it happening. Is there, is there anything we can do just not only to prevent our colleagues from leaving, to, but to prevent ourselves from leaving, right? Because I'm, I'm a big fan of the fact that, uh, you know, there are small changes that we can make and, and it shouldn't have to be a choice between staying sane and thriving and working. You know, you shouldn't have to leave your job in order to thrive at work. And I'm, presumably that's the sort of thing that you feel as well, Sonali, am I right? Absolutely, Rachel. To be able to retain people, I mean, we, I go back to the report that was done by, by Michael West, who talks about the, the ABC of well-being, which is A, which stands for autonomy, B is for belonging, and, and C is for competence. So what is there? What is it that we are doing or not doing, perhaps, that people are leaving us? Mm-hmm. Like I said about the attrition, and we are seeing attrition that happens at probably those, those transition periods that are there, you know, so if you're looking at general practice, when you've been a trainee and you are protected, given perhaps that protection, given that sense of belonging, and then suddenly you now, then the training finishes and you feel you're at that cliff edge, isn't it? And you're, you're out into the, the big world, which has been much harder during the COVID time, certainly. Then what happens at that transition period when you're going from being somebody who's been in their first five years of, of their career and then they go on to that transition phase from going from the five to, to 10 years. And then what happens at the other end of the spectrum, you know, the, what we call as the wise five, you know, how do we make sure that we keep those people who are, who've absolutely given it everything to their profession, you know, given their time, given all their brain space that they had, how is it that we can, and how do we make sure that we can keep them slightly longer in the profession not just for themselves, but for us, for, for them to be able to pass on their experience to us. We need the experience that they've gained, the relational memory, the organizational memory that they have built over the years. We absolutely need that. So for me, I think it is, it's about what culture are we building in the place that would keep people happy in their workplace. I think that's so right, isn't it? Culture is such an important part of feeling feeling happy at work. And, you know, I guess no two general practices are the same, are they? I mean, you, you can work in one place and then go to another place and it's so much better in the other place. You know, the work is sort of the same, isn't it? You know, you're still seeing the same patients with the same problems. But I guess it's how the partnership chooses to handle the the patients and handle the workload makes a big difference. But also the, the ethos of the the partnership. What I'm interested in this interplay between the actual job and the culture, because I think with the best in the world, if the job is awful, can you create a culture that's so nice that people will stay and do a really awful job? Job's tough wherever you go. You know, I, I mean, I would say certainly with general practice, having had exposure to that, but also having family members who have been lawyers. So both my sister and my sister-in-law are, are lawyers. They've got a tough job. My father has been in the finance world and he's now 72 and still date, he is not coming back home. You know, he's and he likes to work from his workplace. He's not here. He's in India. He wants to go into his workplace and still he's, you know, pulling those long hours and he's coming back home at 8.39 p.m. So, so the job is tough. The job is challenging, whichever sector you work in. But the culture, the fact that it makes the job doable, enjoyable, is going to be by the people who are there in that place. And I think what is going to, what makes that culture is the communication, the engagement, the transparency, the feeling that we are in it together. This is not about them and us. 
This is about that if we've got something, a problem at hand, or even if we've tried to solve something, we're going to be doing it together. And I think for me, certainly, through the course of my career, tried to keep those lines of communication open. We used to have an open door. And if you're not seeing patients, then, you know, in the days and we're only when we were going to practice and only offering face-to-face, or even now where we're doing a mixture of remote and face-to-face, keeping that open door so that my colleagues are able to speak to me. I was leading on the HR aspect for our practice and all the staff, the receptionists, the secretaries knew that if they had an idea, if they had a problem, then they were, ha- they were going to come and speak to me about it and we were going to try to solve this yeah, I think that's really important, that feeling that somebody else in your organization has got your back. And I remember the most sort of releasing thing that was ever said to me in a practice, just an offhand comment in a practice meeting. We were talking about some complaints that were, were going on and or someone had put in a very unreasonable complaint about, I can't even remember what it was, and the, the GP had followed the guidelines and whatever. And one of the managing partners said, you know what, if you get complaints for following guidelines, or even if you just make a mistake, we've got your back, we're here for you, we don't mind, you know, and it's like, wow, you know, that's so releasing, it means that you're not going to be so worried the whole time. That was, that was really helpful, because I think a a lot of professionals, one of the big worries, isn't it's doing something wrong, it's making a mistake, and is, I mean, it just constantly astounds me that we expect ourselves to be 100% accurate, I mean, not even machines are 100% accurate. And then we absolutely beat ourselves up when we do something wrong or make a mistake. And it doesn't help by the general public expecting us to be 100% accurate and, and have an absolute, you know, witch hunt when we do just make a common mistake as if we'd meant to do it. But just having an organisation that you know is going to get your back, I think, makes makes a huge, huge difference to, well, certainly GPs in my experience. And I know GPs, you know, have left when they just felt, you know, had a complaint and felt completely unsupported by their practice. It makes a big difference, doesn't it? So I think you're right. We do beat up ourselves, beat ourselves over it as to that we've, we're not going, we, we are specialists in generalism. And certainly I think our job is harder. We, we are supposed to know a lot or a little bit about everything. So I think the organization or the senior leaders, I would say, and I, when I say senior leaders, I know there's sometimes a little bit that as to, you know, do we, should we really be having a senior partner or, or a junior partner, whichever way. But it is the role of people who are perhaps more experienced to have the back of those people who are new into their careers. You know, we should be providing that for our trainees. So I'm particularly interested in people that are leaving the workforce because of the workload, because they feel they just can't cope with the workload. And I'm just wondering in my head, how does culture, you know, help with that? Because actually, bottom line, if you've got too much work to, you've got too much work to do. And if there isn't anyone else to do it, you've just got to do it. So how, how can a, an employer or a practice, how can you help with that and stop people leaving because of that? I think, and and I hear that, Rachel, I hear that a lot in terms of that, you know, if you've got the workload, who is going to ensure that the workload from 8 till 6.30, which is the in hours, the in core hours that we've got in general practice, you have to make sure that everything that comes through the door or digitally gets dealt with within the day. So, you know, does culture impact that? Absolutely, it does who is communicating within your workplace as to what, how much workload is coming through, what discussion has taken place, how we share that workload. Sometimes people 
feel that, okay, perhaps maybe, you know, there is not equitable share of the workload. And then that immediately impacts your morale, isn't it? Because then you're feeling that what I'm doing is more and what the other person is doing is less. And then that just widens the gap. Your motivation to be able to do the work also goes down because you you feel that there is a them and us. So is that communication, that engagement taking place so that you're able to, to share what the workload has been? And I think the discussion is not just about as to what those discussions are happening internally, feedbacking, doing the feedback as well, that, you know, there is an increase in, in workload. You gradually increase your sphere of influence so that you're in, able to impact that the bureaucracy that has come in, which, which impacts our workload. I think also within what else impacts the culture certainly would be if you are sharing that you're struggling with your workload, maybe get people into the discussion as to is there a more effective way of doing this? Is there a more efficient way of doing this? Simple examples, and I know my examples are perhaps more general practice related, given my knowledge expertise there, is, you know, when our blood results come into the system or the way our letters from the hospitals come in, into the system, there would be practices perhaps that have been able to streamline that process, whereas in the other places they haven't. And because they're in that vicious cycle or a spiral of the fact that there is too much workload, there is no headspace, you are not able to put your head above the parapet, see what else new innovative techniques are coming out there and not able to bring that then into your workplace, you're just going down that spiral. So if you've got perhaps like a, a, a trainee or a new person who's joined your team who may be buzzing with ideas, but then if you're drowned in that in the workload, your head is down, they're not going to be necessarily be able to approach you with that idea and you're mm-hmm. not necessarily going to be able to reduce that share of that workload, which they may have actually brilliant ideas for. Yeah. And you see them as, as a problem and that they're just moaning about the work, aren't they? Rather than actually they're coming in with with some solutions. And I think sometimes there might be a little bit of a, a culture gap between the old guard and the new people coming in, you know, these old sort of cradle to grave GPs that were on call every... I mean, I still remember my dad was a GP in the sort of 70s, 80s, well, 90s and, and noughties actually, but we couldn't go out at a weekend because my mum had to stay in to take calls from patients and then she'd have to bleep my dad wherever he was. So, you know, he was just on call all the time. And But then the workload was much less sort of during, during the day. So it's a completely different way of working. And I have experience, you know, when we've said, fed back to maybe older partners saying, actually, it's probably not fair that you're just piling extras and extras and extras. Can you do anything about it? And the response was, well, we've always done it like this. So you just have to suck it up. And that's an incredibly demoralizing, demoralizing place to be. And I, I, I think people have experienced that sort of reaction and just get completely fed up with it. Absolutely. I think. And there's, and COVID has that way been, it's been interesting, isn't it? Because we've all had to adapt to change overnight. And perhaps some, if not all of the professions, how beautifully have we adapted and, and you know, look at our patient population, how they have, they have adapted to all of this. So, so change is possible. I mean, unfortunately, it had to be a pandemic for us to to move towards that change. Change is hard, isn't it? It's it's hard for for anyone and everyone. There's some people who are, there's a beautiful curve again for changes to you've got the laggards and then you've got the, so you divide always the world into thirds as to those people who are going to be running happily with seeing anything that is new and shiny. And there's some people who are sitting on the edge just trying to see what's happening. Let's 
let's watch and wait and watch whether these people are going to still be happy and shiny and then they're, they're going to be the laggards. But keep those, I think, those doors of communication open, keeping those channels open so that you could perhaps be having an, you know, somebody coming to you with an idea to say that would actually make your life better and much more effective. And then you would be able to get home in time and not really be burning the midnight oil. Mm. That's funny. I mean, I've, I've heard from someone that, you know, during COVID, their senior partner that has just blocked any sort of triage, it's blocked telephone triage, it's blocked online triage, it literally overnight was forced to do online consultations. And then they've said, oh, actually, it's quite good, isn't it? <laughs> it's actually working. So there's a lot of people have been forced to make some quite big changes. So I think coronavirus, whilst it's been obviously devastating, there, there have been some processes that are coming out of it that we will take and we, we will run with. And I'm hoping that that will help the retention crisis. You know, the, it will help keep the, the people who would otherwise be leaving because it's forced us to address the issues that we've got that we needed to change to help with workload. But, I, you know, I am hearing that the workload is it's just going up and up and up now. It's pretty exponential for GPs. And I was just wondering what else you would be advising practices to do in order to keep their GPs or to keep their people? I would put culture always at the top of it. So mm-hmm. the top people. There are lots of national incentives and schemes as well that have come through. Certainly, for people who are at their start of their career. So, you know, you have the new to practice scheme. We also want to encourage people to get into partnership. So there's the new to partnership scheme. And then we've also got the senior mentor scheme where people who are there in the Wise Five or others can, can become mentors. And locally within Nottingham, it's our, it's our mid-careers that we worry a lot about where, you know, people have not had, people like you and me, perhaps, who have not had the opportunity because these schemes weren't there when we had just come out of, of training. And the mid-careers really do. And I would say not just GPs, I would say actually across the profession, our GP nurses, the mid-careers really hold the place together. And so what is it that we can offer them to be able to keep them? And I think more and more, I have been, you know, where what we haven't had is coaching and the use of coaching in our personal and professional life and the benefit of it being different from mentoring. And I really think we have to see if we are able to create ways where people have access to coaching. So during coronavirus, the People's Directorate within NHS England certainly made coaching available called as Looking After You Too available to anybody who was working within the NHS. And I utilized that. I, you know, I did about three or four sessions with it. And just the perspective of, you know, just look the lens with which you look at certain problems absolutely changes. And you're given some time to reflect where you've been, but equally how you really work through some of those really tough problems at times. And where you're still taking the lead. So it's not somebody else solving the problem for you, but you're still taking the lead to be able to do that. So I think that is certainly something that would be beneficial to consider for any profession. Sports people have, have coaches, you know, throughout their life, isn't it? And uh, there's a, an article written by a surgeon, Atul Gavande, who talks about surgeons having coaches. So, you know, have, have a coach in your theater room. Why do we stop doing that when, you know, once you've finished your training and, and the merit that is in it? So I certainly think, I think that would be 
quite helpful. I think one of the other things that I've noticed more recently has been about the salaried or sessional GPs and the partnerships. And it's perhaps worth exploring as to this dual role that we have now got within general practice where, you know, you're, you're a partner GP or you're a sessional GP. And where does the ownership of a business or the lack of ownership of a business amounts to non-belonging to the practice? And I just started to actually explore that a bit further. What has led to that gap between people who are owners of a business and people who aren't? Yeah, and I think this is something that is really badly done in general in general practice because sort of traditionally everyone just became partners and you became a partner because it was almost like a career decision I want to be a partner not I want to run a business and it was almost to do with seniority and and all that sort of stuff and and then you've got the people who came along as salary GPs portfolio GPs because they didn't want the responsibility of having to run the practice but they were still clinically just as good and now you've got this sort of weird two-tier system you've got the you've got partners who are supposed to be running the business but most of them don't run the business or some of some of them do some of them don't it really really varies expecting that the salaried doctors will have just as commit the same commitment to the practice as they do even though it's not their business and almost expecting the salary doctors to take the same amount of business responsibility it's a very weird system where I don't think the expectations on either of them are very clear. I've done lots of team coaching in practices and there are some partners that just completely abdicate all responsibility for any of it and just want to see patients. And you think, well, why are you a partner then (laughs) if you don't want to do that? I get it. You'll push for time. And with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops, top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz. And perhaps something for us to learn from other professions here, isn't it? Mm. I think the law world has, has perhaps is perhaps ahead of us, us in that journey because they've had some kind of equity partners, non-equity partners. So really, I mean, what I've only seen a little bit from my sisters and sister-in-laws, it still keeps that sense of ownership. It keeps that sense of, uh, sorry, not the sense of, the sense of belonging where you can impact change and work together. So I think it is something worthwhile exploring. And I think something you said there about portfolio roles, also how it salaried became synonymous with, or or the portfolio role became synonymous just with sessional or salary, when it's not true. Partners also do portfolio roles. I have been, I think, uh, I have been a portfolio GP for now majority of my career and enjoyed it because it is hard to do only clinical work, doing that for eight sessions or nine sessions. You want to, you know, you've had Serena uh, at, at your previous in your previous podcast to be able to actually do work flexibly, do other things as well. Just keeps various parts of your 
brain active. So I encourage people that you should look at exploring, progressing your career. Just, you know, it's, it's not just about, it's not just about vertical progression in number of years that you gain, gain in the clinical side. It's about horizontal as well. You know, it's, you want to look at, you could have interest in education. You could have interest in leadership, in management, in people development. And we do have, we do have these options available. So just, just look out. So I think one of the other things I would say that you asked about retention was also kind of look in the broader sense. What is it? Clinical practice is giving you joy, which is brilliant, but broaden your horizon as well. I know people will then say, well, then, but we do need people to be doing the clinical work. I get that. But that's how we will also attract people into our profession that come and join us because it's enjoyable and it's um, variable. Yeah, it's that fine balance between we need bums on seats seeing patients, but we want to keep people and with the best one in the world, doing 10 surgeries a week is not a way to stay sane. I think this comes all the way back to what you said just now about coaching. And I think coaching is is so, so important. I've done my own sort of career change or whatever. And, and I did that through having coaching. And I got further in like three months than I would have done in, in 18 months, just because I was looking at what I really enjoyed and what I loved. And I then found a way of staying and staying and doing, you know, bits and pieces of this, but also diversifying and doing other stuff. And I'm such a big fan of diversifying. And I really feel that if you diversify and you encourage people to do other things, they will then stay in general practice because uses other bits of your brain, gives you a different type of team. It allows you to be maybe more creative. I think doctors are very creative people and they can't necessarily get that creative when you're sort of churning through 20 patients. But, you know, designing and planning and doing all this. And it helps you work to your strengths as well. I think that's something we don't talk about as doctors. You know, what are your actual strengths you know and, and there are all these sort of online strengths find the surveys and things you can do and they're absolutely fascinating I I did one and I, and I went oh, that's why I like doing that you know one of mine is um, communicating ideas that's one of my top strengths I'm like oh oh that's why I sort of like doing the podcast <laughs> and that's why I like speaking at conferences because it's communicating but actually if I'd have stayed exactly in the role I was in I, I wasn't doing any of that and it allows you to develop and actually, it's not about making a massive career change, often just small changes. And that's what this podcast is about, I guess, is small changes. And, and, and people call it job crafting. And I think we probably need a bit more help in crafting our jobs so that it makes us make, yeah. want to stay. Absolutely. So interesting you said about strength finders. So one of the things within Next Generation GP, which is a, a leadership program, started a few years, not a couple of years ago, three years ago. We do use a strength finders approach in that, and they have a session on strength finders, which is absolutely marvelous because one, you get to see your strengths individually. But when I remember the last time we did it, you also see your strength as a team. So you're just people sitting around the table and seeing what you can really bring out in each other. So it's kind of building that peer network as well. So you get to know each other as to what, you know, you play to each other's strength. And then something you said there about that job crafting. So one of the things, again, that could help, and I'm sure will help with retention, is where we 
ask our people what matters to them most. We're always now being told, ask your patient what matters to you. Mm-hmm. Why are we not asking the same question to our workforce? Mm-hmm. Let's try to make a job around them. And so make the job fit the person and not the person fit the job. Yeah. And and then they feel that they've created something together and that will evolve, that will change. So when they've got perhaps little kids, the job will look very different when the kids, you know, come into their teenage years and when they may not want you at all to be, you know, breathing down their neck, the job will look different. And then when, you know, when they fly the nest, it will look different. It again comes on, why are we not talking to our own to say what really matters to them? And I think there are some people who are doing this and they're doing an absolute marvelous job at it. And then they will retain those GPs. Another, I would say, and people say, oh, it's just probably the areas which have got enough resources. You know, it all comes down to funding. No. So we have a fantastic project, which is called as the Depend Project, which was started in Scotland. But they've also, from that, they've developed something called as a Trailblazer Fellowships. And this was initially shown, uh, done in, in Yorkshire and Humberside. So the trainees, and these are in the, those areas which are very deprived So they had trainees, they were given the support, the trainees were given the support in a fellowship in that area. And 95% of these trainees are retained in the same practices where they have done their trailblazer fellowship. Mm. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's really, wow, that is amazing. So these are technically meant to be quite hard areas. Mm. What is it that we are doing to support them that actually then they want to stay? So we've We've addressed some of the retention problem there, isn't it? And how do we mirror that to make sure it happens the same for our mid-careers? Yeah. What factors do you think did keep them in there? The support, valuing, going back to the purpose, the peer network, learning from each other. And also some of the other things are around that multidisciplinary team approach. It's not always the general practitioner who is going to solve everything we think that we can. So we need to look at the wider team. And it's not just the health team, it's the care team as well. So what's happening with our voluntary sector? What Mm. is happening with our social care team? I had the opportunity when I was in Nottingham to go and sit with our council, in our city council, just to see how how they deal with the same people. You know, I just see them in my clinical room. They're they're seeing them at their triage and, and or at discharge. And in a lot of things, we were trying to do the same things. But in some things, they are so creative that really crafting that around what the patient's needs are. But just if we spoke a little bit more to each other, I think I was told I was probably perhaps the first GP who had ever gone and sat in the city council to see Mm. what was happening at their triage and then how do they see a patient journey, what services they needed at home. And then at the discharge point, when they were getting discharged from the hospital, that transition again. So, yeah, so I think I think what probably perhaps does help in that retention is to have that wider team approach. Yeah, yeah. So have a wider team approach, help, you know, make someone feel supported and valued in their jobs, help them craft their jobs. So actually do more of what they're, they're good at rather than just say, you're a salary GP. This is what our salary GPs do, blah, 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 blah. But you will do exactly the same, actually craft it to the person and get them doing doing different things. And then anything else that strikes you as really important if you want to keep your people? I would say, so again, 
and I keep going on about the culture, but having that inclusive culture, you know, you had, you covered in your last podcast, it was a brilliant post. I don't think it was the last podcast, but one of your podcasts on how to be actively anti-racist and simple things in terms of some of the things that, you know, that you said about saying the name properly of a person who works with you, how much difference it makes, uh, you know, where people are not having to use then their short names or nicknames just so that they can have their name pronounced properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, truly building that, you've got a richness in general practice. I mean, in London, if I look at the diversity that is there, but are people truly feeling included? Are you really giving them that space that they can, they can do some quality improvement so, yeah, I think inclusive, not, not just for the sake of it, but because of the richness that it will bring to your life. Yeah. And that goes right back to what you said at the beginning about, you know, the, the three things that the GMC report talked about, autonomy, belonging and competence. So give autonomy, give them choice over their careers. You know, these are professional people that have trained for a very long time. Just treating them like shift workers is, 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 is not good. Help them feel that they belong, that they are valued members, even if they are not the business owner, they're not partners, they are a valued member of stuff and they can contribute stuff to the running of the practice. And then the, the C is for sort of competence, giving them the resources and the skills that they need to do the job. Because that's very stressful, isn't it? Feeling you're out of your, your competence zone and being asked to do stuff that you don't know. I mean, I guess that happens in general practice quite a lot because like anything can come in, can't it? But if you have the support and the resources, then even if the workload is high, actually that's okay you can sort of cope but then I think finally there is that thing about the workload and it's like you say we can't just use that as an excuse we can't just say right it's workload and it's just never going to get any better because actually some practices manage to nail it and some don't and some practices have made some decisions not to earn as much money in order to have more people covering the workload in order to they've made the decision to be flexible to really nail down and hammer their processes so that their GPs aren't just under it all the time and I'm sure you've seen a, a massive variety of the way different practices do handle that yeah and, and I think there is something in there about the regulatory bodies as well to to help out because there has been over the years we've seen isn't a, it a bit of a mission creep with the bureaucracy so where is it that we can change the processes so the appraisal process we've seen how it it needs to go through that evolution you know is it really fit for purpose we keep now there is a great article in BMG about, is it fit for purpose? Is it achieving what it was meant to achieve? What's happening with CQC? I mean, yes, they're a regulatory body, but again, what is the purpose? Is the practice, are they being supportive to the practice so that they are able to provide the services to the patient? Or is it, you know, we know that there'll be a domino effect if a practice gets shut shut down, isn't it? So, what are the regulatory bodies that are doing that can actually support the general practice? And we try to remove those, those bureaucracy things where, where really that during the COVID times, there was a huge reduction in the, the reports that we had to do or, you know, the insurance reports or the other reports that we had to do. And just not having that overload actually made it enjoyable, didn't it? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. It, it makes me um, think about Hertzberg motivation hygiene theory. 
In the 1960s, where Hertzberg said, you know, forget pay, forget rewards. You just need to make their jobs more interesting. And it's about the fact that you've got these things that motivate you that are motivation factors. And you've got things that demotivate you that are hygiene factors. And they're not the same. You know, so you need to remove unnecessary bureaucracy. You need to pay people properly. You need to make the processes okay. You need to give them a good working environment. And if those are all there, that's great. People won't be demotivated, but it won't motivate them. In order to motivate them, you need to have purpose. You need to be recognized for doing a good job. You need to feel that you're doing a good job. You need to have relationships. You need to have opportunities to grow and to develop within your work rather than just being sort of stuck in a dead end job doing the same thing day in, day out. And I think sometimes we think that just getting the pay right or just maybe getting the processes right is all there is without remembering the other half of that. Yeah, it's about growing as a person, isn't it? Yeah. You have to you have to make your life exciting, interesting, just like in your personal life. How do you keep your relationships exciting, interesting? You know, you, you so just like what you do in your personal life where you go those changes, I think the same should be given to professional life and diversify. Yeah, diversify. Take people along with you. Don't leave people behind. Keep those channels of communication open. But also, and reach out to some because not everybody would perhaps be able to come and speak to you very easily. There are some people who may not have had those opportunities or may have put their head above the parapet and only to be shot down. So look out for each other. I think I go back again to having someone's back. So look out for those people within your teams who would not be the ones to put their hands up. Give them a nudge. You know, have have that discussion with them before your Zoom meeting for five minutes or 10 minutes to say, just how are you doing? Are things okay? Is there anything that you want to talk about? How is life? Where do you want, you know, which which way do you think you're going? Mm-hmm. So we're nearly at the end of our time at Sonali. I'm just interested if you had three top tips, both for, you know, the employers, the practices, but also three top tips for the professionals themselves to keep themselves in, in a job that they're going to love. What, what would those tips be? Wow, three top tips. So for the organization, I would say communication, 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 really, in any shape, way, and form. You know, use digital, use, use knocking the doors, talking to people, whichever method works. Keeping that transparency so that they don't feel that they're being left behind. But so communication would be certainly my top thing with regards to from the organization point. From the self point of view, I think I would certainly ask people to consider coaching. Mm-hmm. You've got the offer available through you know, the NHS. It's free. So it's so no reason why people at least, but certainly, and I would imagine in the other professions, if anything, perhaps people are, have more access to it. We are still catching up in the NHS. I think the other professions are perhaps ahead of us. So as an individual, I would say certainly coaching. I would say having some sort of kind of reaching out, if, if you think you feel okay with that, is to reach out to others for just general chat about your career. Mm. Where do you think I should be going? Where do you think I am going? And then third, I would say, is also asking about building that job around you. Mm. We're not in a sausage factory. We're not just having, you know, going around in the conveyor belt. We are humans. We are people. Uh, we all bring some emotional baggage with us. That whatever happens at home impacts your work life. Mm. 
So have those discussions as to how can that job be built around me. And I think, and perhaps that goes both ways because that's, you know, the it's not just for the individual to be able to ask that. The organization has to have an open mind to be able to actually do that. But if they do that for everyone, then one, nobody feels left behind. Two, everybody feels that, you know, they're pulling their weight in whatever needs to be delivered, which is your bums on the seat from 8 to 6.30. And three, you will fill those gaps as well. Because if you put a problem to an organization that this is what we need to cover, then you work out between yourselves how we will cover that period. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Great advice. And I think that that thing about take charge of your own career, make sure you are reaching out, you're doing stuff, you're diversifying. Because I think the worst thing, the worst thing I've ever experienced is to be stressed and bored in work at the same time. really stressed and really bored. I'm like, what's going on? I'm not getting anything from this. We Human beings need to grow and learn and develop. And if you're feeling bored, even if you're stressed, just do something that's going to challenge you or learn a new skill or learn something different or reach out and go and find those opportunities. But those opportunities, they are out there, but they're not necessarily either advertised and they don't necessarily land in your lap. So you need to be a little bit proactive about going out and finding that out. And like you said, I'm a huge fan of coaching. So get some coaching to work out what is it you actually love to do anyway? And how are you going to, how are you going to go find it out? How are you going to, you know, progress and just try different things? I think most people that I know in the NHS who've got really interesting, varied careers didn't go, right, I want to do X and here's my career journey through 10 years. They're like, oh, I'll try that. And that's led to this. And that's led to, I'm sure that's exactly the same for you, Sonali. Absolutely. It's, it's absolutely been that. And yeah, interesting you say about those opportunities aren't always available. Join social media, I would say. So Twitter, so try it. Try it. Good advice. Well, thank you. And, and I know you're very active on Twitter. So if people wanted to contact you, find out more about you, how, how could they do that, Sonali? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at Sonali Kindra. Happy for people to send me a, a message. And anybody who, I'm not saying that I'm a career counselor or a career advisor, but always, always, my, you know, I'm happy to have a discussion or help you put, in, put you in touch with others who may be able to guide you better. But so, so yes, message me through Twitter or send me an email, quite easy, sonali.kindra at nhs.net for any trainee who is going through a transition phase or somebody in the mid-career who just wants to, who's feeling stressed and bored in their, in their workplace and yeah, wants something, something that makes it more exciting, more enjoyable and more belonging to where they are. Great. Thank you so much. So yeah, and I just encourage people to access access all these opportunities available. And if you can get some coaching, it's just, it's transformational. It's not just for people who aren't performing. It's for people who want to do their best. How, you know, you never get a professional athlete without a coach. And I, I, I strongly believe that if you want to do well in life and career, it's good to get some coaching. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. That's been fantastic. And hopefully we'll get to speak again soon. Thanks so much, Rachel. This has been interesting. Thanks. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please subscribe to my You Are Not A Frog email list and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, then please leave me a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. So keep well, everyone. You're doing a great job. You got this.